so uh, Dr. Coons, what you're telling me is that you're not so sure about the grand meta narrative anymore, and you want to talk about the most interesting, radical, inflammatory clickbait that you can. Dr. Fauci almost being that, and then maybe focus <laughs> our, our our pedagogy. I don't know on a more broad picture. I don't know. What are you saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm saying that what we're going to be working on is kind of dividing up the labor and the form that that's going to take, you're going to have to stay tuned for. But what you and I are going to be working on today is going to be one part of it, which is to look at the present from the perspective of the past. We'll also do another thing in a format to be named later, you know, with a second round pick that will look from the past into the present. So today in looking at what is going on with going into, you know, our dark winter that I feel like is already here, right? we are going to, we're going to, you know, enlighten ourselves by looking at the past. And in this case, not all that distant past to the extent it's, it's so close to us that some of the people that were in charge of the response to this past, this close past uh, are still around and in charge of things still today. Right. So uh, before we go into any of that beyond dark winter already being upon us, let's let's review that then, because I mean, the reason to study the history of power, the reason to wonder what events of history ultimately are the ones that matter insofar as explaining where we are right now. The reason is for that is because where we are right now is pretty weird and we need to, like, get some bearings, it seems. Uh, right. What is not quite Matrix level Neo's head pulled out, but. It is. In fact, that would be easier maybe because you'd see it all the time. Whereas now you just know the gaslighting is going on and, and you have to be aware of it. And you're like always kind of in, in danger of being sucked back into it, I guess. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And you want to know it's sort of it's sort of like somebody that, that realizes that they're the people that raised them are not their biological parents. You want to know where you came from for whatever set of reasons. People usually get more interested in genealogy as they get older. So if you're in a time and a place that is very strange, you want to have some sense of where these things came from and why they're there. And do they have to be there? Do they, do they need to be there for a little bit longer? And then maybe not at all. All of these things, we're trying to turn questions into something or some set of answers. And there are kind of two ways to do that. And one of the ways is to look from the past into the present that's going to take more time. So we want to take time to set that up. We want to take time to establish that meta narrative. But another way is to look in the present back into the past and see what light we can get right now. And that's what I want to do today with the notion of pandemics. The one that to which today is usually compared. And I think it's, that's partly done because the information is relatively sketchier and the media realities are totally different, is the Spanish flu epidemic right, right, right. right after World War I. And part of the reason that people do that is because that one is basically forgotten. I, in fact, was, I was in a graduate seminar on, in fact, that epidemic in a history department two years ago. And at the time, the instructor kept complaining, nobody remembers this, nobody remembers hmm. this. Hmm. And some of the reactions were similar. Some of the events were similar, although the death rate was a lot higher, um, especially in the United States. Significantly, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, a lot higher. What I want to look at today is something that's connected by the, by the figure of Anthony Fauci. And that is what is variously called the AIDS crisis, the AIDS scare. There were different names for it before the mid-1980s. 
But Fauci is a direct connection because he was put in charge of the National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases in 1984. So he predates any kind of long-standing solution, and we'll talk about what they came up with, to AIDS. And he's been there ever since. He's still there. That's why he is Dr. Fauci that you know, does press conferences and goes on CNN today. And in this way, he, I guess, is uh, fortuitous. He is the eminent boomer. This is this is the boomers coming to their boomerism yeah. at all boomerism's right time. That 19 mid-80s, yeah, those right. children yeah. of the 60s have now grasped the reins of the future, which will always be passing those reins forward to the new radicals who come after them, of course. Right. Or will it just entrench itself uh, as a what? A, a stolid and stalwart radicalism that never moves. Weird. Right. 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 Weird. Weird. And so one the the there are similarities in some of the personnel. There are similarities in blame placed or not placed on the Centers for Disease Control. Hmm. But I think a lot of the maybe the place to start is with a lot of the dissimilarity, because probably the biggest difference and you can find a really interesting it's maybe like 56 minutes. You probably don't want to watch all of that but a really interesting YouTube compilation of TV news coverage Hmm. from about 1982. So that's two years before Fauci comes to, you know, that part of the, of the NIH 1982 down to 1992. What's really interesting is the way that they talk about it, because as far as things like death rates, at least within the communities that were affected, what would come to be called HIV slash AIDS was totally lethal. I mean, in a, I mean, in at percentages going beyond, you know, even hotspots for influenza in 1919. So you're dealing with something that was, I mean, more than decimating. Decimating just means killing one out of every 10. But in addition to that YouTube compilation, the thing that I really recommend to people if they're interested in what we're going to talk about today is this massive trove called the oral history of the early days of AIDS. And it is interviews done, and it's archived by, I think, some public library in California. So it's very San Francisco-focused, San Francisco being one of kind of the two hotspots along with New York. But it's an oral history with all kinds of different people. So there's a man who attends a synagogue in San Francisco, and he is just talking about, you know, every week we would hear that some synagogue member died, right? (laughs) Every week. So you're dealing with, you know, just something that for the communities it's affecting were enormously destructive. Now, can I, can I, yeah, ask, go ahead. this yeah. is directly an outflow of this same generation's sexual ethic that they embraced in the sixties. Is it not? I mean, the, the concentration of yeah. licentiousness um, yeah. with a forefront or forerunning of certain uh, more unnatural or cross hetero directions. I don't know how I was going to say it. Um, You know, all of that comes out of that, that 1960s, 60s boomer generations growth. And now, uh, interestingly, then they get put into a situation where they have to face the result of their own, their own choices. Right. Okay. Yeah. I, I think so. That is, that is definitely part of it. And probably the biggest difference that you notice in TV coverage that you can find on the early days of AIDS versus COVID is the focus on how people live and the choices they make with their mm-hmm. life. So mm-hmm. with COVID, you almost never get, you you will get some admission of comorbidity, but you don't get discussion really, of though. weight loss yeah. or, no. sunlight, or exposure to sunlight or anything like that. It's, it's all kind of like, how can I treat this clinically and how can clinicians deal with this? 
And what I'm going to say in telling today's story is there's a reason coming out of the AIDS crisis that we talk about disease that way. Because when, when what you have going on in the early days of, when I say early days of AIDS, I'm talking the very end of the 70s, very beginning of the 80s, is you have observations by a variety of different people. So people that work with the homeless, just kind of like a social worker working with the homeless in New York, hmm. clinicians specializing in, in gay men in San Francisco, same thing in New York, but also kind of observations about drug users in Los Angeles mm-hmm. or people that know what's going on with, at that time, very small communities of Haitian immigrants in different parts of California, not Miami, which becomes like a big uh, place for Haitian immigrants. There's very small numbers in the 70s and early 80s. And they notice, they notice that all of these groups are affected, but gay men most of all, by a variety of conditions. So among those are a particularly virulent form of pneumonia. Among those are something that they thought at first was what they were looking for, which is Kaposi's sarcoma, which is a certain presentation of legions on the skin. And they thought that Kaposi's sarcoma was what the problem was to the extent that even on news reports, but also in the oral testimony of men who would die of AIDS in the 80s, they just referred to it as gay cancer. Hmm. Because although it was found among especially users of heroin, Haitians, and also hemophiliacs, so some doctors would call it the 4-H disease, hemophiliacs, Haitians, heroin users, and homosexuals, it was particularly virulent among homosexuals. And that's what the media covered. And the media was really comfortable. I mean, they didn't really talk so much about drug use or people with blood disorders or Haitian immigrants. They mostly talked about, and they were called at the time publicly, it wasn't gay, wasn't really a big term. They were called homosexual men. And to the extent that both clinicians and gays in San Francisco, especially, and also the media referred to what we now call HIV AIDS as gay related immune deficiency syndrome, GRIDS. <laughs> that was the first kind of big public name. And you can find people like Tom Brokaw saying it on national right. television. Now, as a, as a 1978 birth coming of age, then in the early 80s, I don't remember a ton, but I remember basically the gay disease, right? Yeah. And right, at the right. time, you know, I was a five or six year old. So you judge me if you will. Um, I only had what the media was telling me to believe at that time. And this, but that's what I remember from it. Mm-hmm. I think right. probably some of the, the overlap of the so-called greatest generation pre-boomer uh, duty to marriage mindset in contrast with the rising radical sexual ethic of the 60s uh, led to that in in some ways, right? Where this is something that they could agree was wrong for the moment still with each other publicly, which is a unique time in history, as opposed to right now, then is where I really would say is like, why aren't you hearing about how this is the diabetes two flu? Like, why aren't you hearing that? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're totally right because it is, is, I mean, and, and, being old enough to remember when like nobody, I mean, being old enough to remember when like Bill Clinton was against gay marriage. Right. It is, it's kind of shocking to see what they say on TV because there are kind of two, two strains that they'll cover. One is this is happening to these men because kind of like what you said, their, their, their habit, their sexual activity 
is risky and self-destructive and passing blood and semen between each other is never going to be good, good way to stay healthy. Right. Okay. And when you, when you get into the, the, the oral history project I referred to, you'll get people talking about, you know, the entire conversation on fire Island in the summer of 1982 was basically what, what cocktail of antibiotics do we need to be on fire Island being kind of hmm. a, a famous gay resort off long Island. So there's that. And the media was still, yeah, probably for political reasons you identify, like none of this was up for grabs. The notion that sexual behavior outside marriage was cool or okay or without consequences was still not normal enough for NBC Nightly News or ABC to just be like, look, what's the problem? It, what is interesting is on the other side, the media coverage is, and although the oral history is not, the media coverage at the time was a lot of interviews with like a man whose face was like blacked out. So he's like sitting in a shadow and he's talking and maybe his voice has been changed and he's talking about how he was fired from his job because he has AIDS. You can see, and this is in both the oral history and the kind of sympathetic media portrayal, is that when people think that there's something, the origin of which they don't understand, they become completely terrified. Because they're like, so there's, there's an example where there's a guy who's, uh, I think this was on a CBS report. He is not, at the time at least, I don't know who he is, HIV positive or anything, as we would now say, although they didn't have yeah, that sure, terminology sure, yet. Sure, sure, sure. He didn't have the gay cancer. That's the term they use, they're using. I, he said, I don't, I don't have AIDS or I don't have the gay cancer. My friend does, but I was talking to my employer about it, so I got fired. <laughs> so what's interesting is to watch kind of the crowd psychology of there's something happening, and I don't know what it is, and I don't know how anybody gets it, but I definitely don't want it, and people go crazy. Right. This explains the herd mentality and the mask when yeah, you're alone totally. in the car. There it is right there. That's why. is because mm -hmm. they've, they've picked the biggest herd they can find because they think maybe they won't get picked off, right? They're just leaning with majority as kind of standard, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, but it is it's what causes people to make these unthinkable changes in their lifestyle as, yeah. like, as a group yeah. and quite radically. Yeah? Right. And and, and the, the difference was, I mean, it, it's it's not like, either the clinicians or the media or people that were panicking were actually wrong about, you know, the, the, the viral origins of, of HIV AIDS and its history worldwide are, you know, not, don't necessarily have to do with homosexual life or something. The, the importance of homosexuals in kind of the progress of the disease also to Haiti because it probably came there from Americans who had a conference where people came from America mostly, but also from Europe to Haiti in 1977. The role that they play there is that you have people who are living in a way that is like just biologically risky. And they also have money and capacity to travel. And so the progress of the epidemic, you know, looking for like a patient zero is going to turn out to be may be fruitless because you can find examples of like Kaposi's sarcoma. There's a, there's a young, a 60 year old boy who died of it in, in St. Louis in the end of the 1960s. So the only, the, the theory people have, but you can't prove this is that he was selling his body to a gay man, not uncommon actually historically. Yeah. And that that's also what's happening in Haiti in the 1970s. 
Not uncommon historically, not uncommon these days in America. Um, yeah. Even if you own an island, you just commit suicide and no one asks any more questions. So, right? Um, right, allegedly. I want to yeah. push it toward right. today then with crowd yeah, psychology, sure. biological yeah. risk, and w- what are the real takeaway principles from this? Uh, you know, I, I mean, obviously you don't want to get snookered, but it's like it's too late. We're all snookered yeah. here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the what you can see is like the the idea that Americans somehow respond differently because we're just more attached to freedom or something doesn't isn't borne out historically. Right. If people feel threatened, they will react in very virulent, intense and unusual ways. If there's even the slightest risk that they could be harmed. And that's psychologically, that's totally understandable. It's just that what what happened with AIDS was relatively geographically isolated and the media was not telling everyone to be afraid at the time of AIDS. They were locating it generally correctly in populations that because of how they lived, whether it was drug use and or homosexual activity, homosexual men especially, were going to be at risk for this and nobody else had to worry about it. So all that the average person who's worried about contracting the disease has to do is to wall himself off from any potential disease vectors. The big difference with COVID is that life and my family and my grandma or my grandson have now become what in 1982 NBC was only telling me like a gay man in San Francisco was. Right, right. A very small or a small, yeah, yeah, microcosmic uh, community. Its own community, mm-hmm. but not the majority of the of the whole population. And yeah, like right. I said, um, geographically located. But okay, so the, the media then in this, do you do you think from your study of this that the the media aided the American public's understanding of the AIDS crisis and uh, made for wiser behavior and policy, or do you think that it did the opposite of that? Yeah, I mean, so the question is like, well, what is the value of putting this on NBC Nightly News? Because what you can see is that over time, their narrative about AIDS is going to change drastically. And I'll, I'll track that in, in a few minutes. I think at the very beginning, what it's, what, it's, what it's able to do as a narrative is present you with a sense of like intense fear and mysterious death. That, interestingly, is the very thing that if you look at oral histories or if you read, there was a movie made on the, ba- on the basis of it, but the book is, is better. It's, it's just more extensive called And the Band Played On by Randy Schiltz. And, and a lot of that is kind of firsthand stuff. And the only mistake I think Schiltz makes is trying to find a patient zero hmm. who he locates in this Quebecois flight attendant named Gaetan Dugas. Now, Dugas was, he knew that he was dying and he was consciously trying to kill other men. Hmm. Okay. But Schultz's book is otherwise an enormous trove of information. As a patient zero, where would he say this came from then? Because the, the, 1980s, well, the 1980s, like yeah. seventh or what would it be fourth grade playground was like, there was monkeys and, and yeah. sex with monkeys and stuff. Yeah. That was, that was and, it. Well, yeah, right. And, and I mean, the reconstruction of how this works is that you get a disease contracted from eating decayed meat, rotten meat in Africa, Central Africa, probably in the 1920s. The reason that this takes off, and this is something that is very much in common, no one talked about this at the time, and they don't talk about it with COVID, 
is that international air travel mm. makes possible disease spread right, right. that just otherwise would not be possible. So, you know, it's, it's like, you know, we're going to forbid you to go over to your grandma's house, but we will continue accepting flights and sending flights all over the world. So, so Dr. Emmett Brown tells Marty that the flux capacitor is what makes time travel possible, but you're telling me that international air travel is what makes pandemics possible. That is interesting. Um, really, really it, is. And not good news for Boeing in a year that hasn't been good for Boeing anyway. Well, it, mm. it makes them, it makes them, I mean, it, it's not really coincidental that you get in the influenza epidemic when demobilization yeah. after world war one is moving millions of people out of Western Europe back all over the world. Cause people don't remember, like, you know, you had Chinese guys building the railroads on the Western front. You had troops from all over the world, Africa, India, and all of a sudden when they all go somewhere else, now you have disease everywhere else. So I don't think it's not really different with HIV AIDS. The issue is that what you get in the early 1980s is sudden media attention. And then after that, an official medical name for something that was identified as a problem for certain people that did certain things. And if they stopped doing them, they would get better. So for instance, in the oral history project, you get a social worker in New York saying, you know, what, what is now called HIV or AIDS, you know, HIV leads to AIDS. That's the common right, right, conventional right. narrative, right? What, what that's now called that in the late seventies, we were calling this the junkie flu hmm. because we noticed that people that were engaging in and, and here drug use and risky sexual behavior pretty much always overlap. So saying like junkies and saying people that do things with their bodies that are going to damage their bodies is kind of like not that's not, th those are kind of the same thing. It's a fascinating tangent for another time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, they, they, she said, we would, we were watching people waste away right in front of us. Right. Which is exactly, that's the very same thing that, that, that now as of 1982, 1983, 1984, you get to see on TV, even if you live in a suburb of Kansas city and you don't even know, you didn't even know that the word gay meant something other than right. being really happy. But know? then, okay. So how different is that from the moment right now? I I just had a family connection within my parish mm -hmm. have a death that's connected to COVID uh, mm -hmm. and connected to a motorcycle accident. In in watching them grieve with this and this you know the challenges it's put upon them, I continue to also struggle with how little there is any pandemic anywhere around me. Like, so mm -hmm. I, you know, mm -hmm. here is mm -hmm. someone from another yeah. state that has a story. I know them and I feel their pain. Yeah. And yet the story that I'm being told day by day is I should see a lot more of this than I am. Mm -hmm. This is this right. is an isolated occurrence. Yeah. I'm a pastor. Yeah. So I'm seeing this. Right. Right. Um, and there was a really, really tragic accident that led to this too. So it would seem that what, well, somewhere between then and now there is, and Fauci might be our threat or not. I don't know where you're going. But between then and now, there's a realization that certain narratives could be used to lead the public towards certain outcomes. And, you know, the, a, a disease seems to be the, the golden ticket uh, toward yeah. a lot of those outcomes. Yeah. Well, I think what you what what has to happen is that you have to get you have to get a wide enough sense in order for people's behavior to change, whether they're changing it or it's being changed for them. You have to get a wide enough sense that this is enough of a threat. Hmm. So 
what's interesting that 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 happens, Fauci is instrumental in the development of drug treatments for HIV AIDS. So HIV AIDS first has to be isolated and it's given two different names, one by the French researchers, one by the Americans. You then get a standardization on the terminology. And once you have a disease, you have something that is now subject to medical treatment. And what you can watch and you, you can't, and there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of information that therefore drops out. So I had mentioned when we were getting ready for today, forgotten byways. The thing to see with the AIDS crisis, epidemic, whatever, is the forgotten byways are all the stuff about personal behavior and behavioral change, especially among homosexuals, that just drops out of any discussion of what comes to be called safe sex mm -hmm. or the AIDS crisis. It turns after about the mid 1980s, and Fauci's not alone in this, but he's part of this narrative shift to something that has to be researched further and treated. So you move from having a population that in 1982 is on TV as there's something really horrible and maybe it's happening because of how they live to here's a population that has to be helped. And if we gave them more rights or we recognize them more, and there's you know, stuff people don't even remember happened. Like it was really important for the gay political lobby when President George H.W. Bush met with openly gay men at the National Institutes of Health in 1990 and shook their hand. Because the idea that you would have physical contact with somebody who was right. for sure HIV positive was still kind of like, because I don't know how this spreads and I don't obviously I don't right. want to die. Hey, Magic Johnson stopped playing basketball and that was a big deal. Yeah, that was a right. big deal. Right. Uh, and other, there were others too, by the way. So yeah, this was, this was a, you don't, I don't even know what the rules are for that now. Do you get tested when you're in the NBA? I have no idea, but it was, I I mean, this was, this was front page uh, cable right. news. <laughs> so the, yes, so the what end. you, any, any of the forgotten byways and you know, the, the oral history stuff is really good on this is stuff about like, they weren't, they weren't discussing shutting down everyday life. They were discussing shutting down the bathhouses where men were having sex with other men. And in order to shut those places, there was a riot at a meeting about shutting down the bathhouses. So the discussions about quarantining or about shutdowns or lockdowns were not about life in general. They were about people that were understood as disease vectors and were understood to be killing themselves. Risk of, well, well, and what today, at least we'd call it risk averse population, right? Yeah. They, they, right. Are, they are people of a high risk. And yeah, that was more clear. What, what I still find really interesting here is how then... It's not that the disease HIV is a disease of behavior, but it is a disease right. which behavior can impact significantly. Yes. And you're not yeah, going right. to catch generally without certain behaviors. And what I find fascinating is, is the potential for an overlap in the current situation um, and the inability of the public to consider such things, pursue or, or even right. study. We've already kind of decided that this is going to follow the polio pattern. Um, we just are going to do it and it's going to sit there and let, have a, have a vaccine fix it for us. And then we will move on. I don't get that as a game. I don't know who wins from that aside from big pharma. And maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Uh, yeah. But it just seems yep. it seems like a, a bad out for all the political parties. That doesn't seem like an answer that solves anything from where if I was sitting in their shoes arguing about which vaccine to tank and then having half the population tank it while we fight. And then, I mean, it just doesn't, doesn't get yeah. the unity I'd want. I'd want to crush yeah. the other guy. I don't know. 
Well, I, I mean, just speaking purely politically and then make sure that I don't forget to talk about big pharma, because I think that that's, that's key to how solutions happen, uh, so to speak. But the political, the politically savvy thing that happened was that gays who were not really a political group outside certain large cities, coherent, organized voting and donating were brought together politically Got it. Uh, by this yeah. uh, on a nationwide scale. Uh, there's an organization called Gay Men's Health Crisis. Notice the terminology. It's neutral-ish. And that things like that took gay politics from being a reality in you know San Francisco and New York to being a nationwide thing. And so, also, so what it did was, yeah. what it did was it identified them. They formerly yes. were a disparate group without right. an ability to identify, aside from a behavior that had no consequence that anyone believed in, at least aside from you had to keep it secret. But right. now, with yeah. a public consequence and a reason to have the skin in the game to protect yourself and maintain your behavior somehow, um, yeah. you also saw you at least saw some see the political value of harnessing the agenda, right? As a as right. a identity. Right. A Marxist identity in need of a cause? I didn't quite say that right, but I think you know where I'm going with that one. Well, I think, I mean, I think they were savvy and the, and the National Democratic Party was savvy in that I think since the 1960s, the Democratic Party has been very forward thinking just in purely operative terms in understanding that once a group begins to demand rights as such in the United States, they can become politically important and valuable, at least under certain circumstances. Right. Yeah. And what the Democratic Party, which was still relatively, I mean, compared to today, it was deeply, utterly fascist, you know, but <laughs> in, in the early 1980s, what they understood was we can take something that could be very volatile. So, I mean, San Francisco politics are uniformly democratic, even in the early 1980s, but what they have early on, especially with disagreements about when and how and why to close the bathhouses, they have a volatile coalition of men who have political spending capital. That's something they've always recognized is that gay men have a lot of disposable income as a group. That group is volatile. One way to bring them back into the fold and to make them part of the fold nationally is to allow them some degree of political self-determination mm -hmm. and to talk about their problems, not in terms of what is wrong with us, but what rights and what help should we have. And so you can find testimony, congressional testimony of men who are HIV positive in the 1980s. And it's really interesting because they use frames that you hear today with COVID, such as, this is not a political question, this is a health question, right? So even though it's being debated publicly and someone is going to have to spend public money on it, and we have spent as a nation enormous so amounts much. of money on HIV AIDS yeah, research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? I'm, I'm thinking COVID, just the lockdown and all that we spent on this too, the amount of money. Well, we yeah. Throw, I mean, just an unbelievable amount of money we threw right. this already. But I mean, what you do when you want to be political, but to shut down political debate hmm. is to say that what you're talking about is purely emotive and human, right, right. And completely understandable. It's not political at all. Using political to mean like bad people who argue so you're not allowed to right. talk now. Right. As right. opposed to having some other meaning that would refer to anything. 
Right. I, I mean, that's, that's what's so weird about that word. Everyone's, every, right. Everyone says they're not a politician. Everyone says they're not political. But then we all keep acting in certain ways that seem pretty political to me. We just don't yeah. like the word. And it's, it's part of the same gambit that if I just use the wrong word long enough, you'll trust me anyway. And right. it, it, that's the gaslight we're talking about. It, but there's, there's more to it than yeah. just liars lying. There is an agenda. There is a direction, right? Yeah. 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 And I, I think it's, let me just explain it a little bit more. Cause I think it's like, if you think about sort of like a deep personal problem that you, the listener have had in your life, it could be a relational thing. It could be an emotional thing. It could be a medical thing. The point of talking about something publicly and denigrating people who disagree with you about what the solution should be. The point of that is so that you get the high ground in postmodern America of being a victim, right? So you get to be someone who is suffering and the, the solution for which you're asking, which is politically sourced, it has to do with someone else's money and how that's spent to help you or your group. By saying that what you're talking about is not political, you are trying to kind of put everyone else in your own emotional situation to see the world from your perspective with, I think it's, this is especially important, the same sort of self-indulgence that human beings generally lend only to themselves. So it's very easy as a human being, even to look at another person in your same group, whatever that group is, and to judge them harshly. It's, it's even easier than that to look at yourself and judge yourself lightly. And so what, what a group will do if it wants to gain political speech and help and funding is to take what is going on inside of it and to make that an issue that can be solved politically through money, research, funding, but simultaneously say, I'm not talking to you out of a political motive. I'm talking to you out of a personal, human, understandable, highly emotional motive. That's such a boomer sales pitch, though. I mean, that's what the churches were doing for the last 30 years, too. It, it, it is. I mean, it's just like a yeah. sales pitch. And and yeah. then here's sort of the question, you know, how long will that work? How long will the ears uh, not be – I think people are still going to be washed away by the white noise, listen to all sorts of kind of grand meta narratives. But in yeah. terms of the um, – we're going to buy this you're not political thing from these yeah. you know, 80 year old uh, lifelong politicians. You know, I, I yeah. just, how right, long right, will right, that yeah, last? Yeah. I think you're going to see a right. lot more of the AOCs coming up, just knocking them off. Some radical coming out of, out of somewhere that, that really cares about what they're talking about. That, yeah. That I th- seems like I think, I think you're totally, I think you're totally right because what that narrative appeals to, or the idea that like, this is just about my health, you know, this is not political is that relies on people's general goodwill mm-hmm. and emotional sympathy. Hmm. How much and, of that's left? Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. And so that is something that I think will prove to be different and certainly is different. So the idea that like somehow we're all just going to agree to wear masks or not to wear masks, to be vaccinated or not to be vaccinated, I think that would be a much more politically realistic thing that we would all you know, pitch into something, you know, Great Depression slash Victory Gardens in World War II style, that that country has come and gone. I don't know if it was there in the 1980s. I was I wasn't even alive when Anthony Fauci became. Who who does anybody trust enough? Yeah, right. To have all of us agree on one thing. I, I we are so rifted in the two. 
Yeah. Uh, that that splits every possible form of unity. And, and part of that's because the two are arguing about what it means to even be who we are. And that's the agenda right. to get control of who we are. Now, the right. thing is that, you know, that country coming and going ideologically as a myth, as a narrative, definitely is a myth for me this year. That doesn't change the fact that I live in a city state that's darn large. It's really, really, really big. It's way bigger than city state mm-hmm. should grow. And it's going to continue trying to excise taxes from me and, uh, and yeah. uh, put restrictions on my life and my children's life for time to come. And that doesn't just include the U.S. It includes the other yeah. city state I live in that's too big called Illinois. And that's without talking about Rockford that probably wants to next me and tax me too. I mean, it's, so the point being, you got all this stuff to think about that's so large and big and wide. It's ignoring you. It's not Americana. It's going to be some other thing. Again, yeah. What's the on the ground move here? I mean, yeah. run around and scream. I mean, I, I mean it, it's just panic. We've talked in previous episodes about sort of like individual steps people can take, things people can do in their own lives. I think one of the takeaways, and I have kind of other things about big pharma and how the NIH functions and how they're going to talk about how to handle a crisis. But the the takeaway from the sort of the history of gay politics is that they were very, very savvy because what they shifted to, especially as HIV was identified and this sort of thing, they shifted from talking about what they do to what they're suffering. So that's what we just talked about. But they also were able not to debate with people who would not agree with them, certainly not in 1989 or 1990, about the moral legitimacy of gay marriage or men wanting to be women or anything that was going on at least in in embryonic form in the 1970s Hmm. to be honest and so they didn't talk about that they didn't say we want the right to fly to haiti and buy prostitutes and then come back to the united states they didn't they did not discuss things that this is why i love oral history just as a genre but this specific project They did not discuss the things that they would tell each other or they would discuss with each other. They did not discuss things that medical doctors in San Francisco themselves knew. Hmm. They presented a united front to a hostile nation, totally hostile nation. They They were pretty much united, at least in public. And they said, this is about research and science. This is not about whether or not you like us or what we do with our lives. So they were willing to wait another... My takeaway yeah, from that ahead. right there is, hey, Christian, if you're listening, you know where you're going to stand the next 40 years is is your freedom of religion. And get ready. Like if you want to go ahead and, and stand in this space, yeah. unite around that. Unite around that idea. There's, there's, a, there's a majority of this country that would like to be able to worship however they want. There still is a majority of this country wants that. Yeah. Right? So that's – to take a, a playbook, right? Um, if you're a, a denomination, stop fighting internally about how to be whatever dream denomination you want to be and realize you're up <laughs> against a wall, right? Yeah. You unite right. and on the things you can agree about and move forward. Um, now, maybe right. that's not right. Maybe that's not right. But that seems to me to be a pretty direct application of this. Uh, yeah. Right to bear arms clearly is something that is still – it's it's uniting people around here. I'll tell you that. Uh, right. So the rights and, and the gay agenda or the homosexual lobby's agenda from the 1980s to see that as an avenue to right. political future, I think is very in line with our conversations going on here. Like, what can I do right now? Realize right. what rights you still have and make sure you have them. Make sure you advocate right. them as rights with science or with logic or with philosophy or something. So you can shout down anybody else who, who just wants to throw their opinion at you. I yeah. Know. And I, I, w- <laughs> I would also say like, be patient, right? Ooh. So they didn't say like, 
you know, I mean, in, you know, 1995, gay marriage was illegal also in California. Okay. <laughs> you couldn't get married to your, you know, homosexual partner, even in San Francisco in 1995. So they, they are able to present a relative, relatively united front. And there are vastly different reactions among gay men to what they should do and how they should handle things. But they presented a relatively united political front. They were politically important, first of all, in local elections. Okay. And they started there, right? There was a right. gay and lesbian democratic club before the AIDS crisis in San Francisco. So they started there. And then the threat of their being angry about something mattered to politicians. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's where, so, so in the same way, then, uh, where you are locally, uniting with those who agree with you in regard to the rights that you know you have constitutionally and right. then making yourself known to your local politicians whose votes are swayed by 200 to 500 when it happens, right? That can, they yeah. can lose by that much. Right. You know, you can bring 5,000 votes to the table because you knock on doors and have a big organization in your town. Well, that is something then isn't that, that that's, that's a voice there. So, right. yeah, I think that's really big. You want to go back and talk about uh, big pharma. Um, I do yeah. uh, a bit. There was something else about elections, uh, local elections, but maybe it'll come up again. Yeah. So, I mean, the the issue with big pharma is that, and I, I'm not really sure that this is like trying to be sinister or something, right? I think this is simply like because of the infrastructure that we have for both researching things and funding them and sourcing them and producing them, our solution our system is very good at finding a corporatized marketable solution to a problem. Okay. So this is how we got back into space in a big way, to be honest, right? <laughs> this is, yeah. I think this is more of a structural issue with modern America than it is something like there were evil people at the Eli Lilly, you know, company in Indianapolis and they cooked this up, you know, is that the discovery of drugs and drug cocktails that would mitigate, and this is sort of the miracle of Magic Johnson, most famously, that would mitigate the effects of being HIV positive and prolong life a great deal, right? Decades and decades at this point. For yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the adopted solution, right? So what's interesting is sort of like with, if you look at coverage of COVID from back in like late January, but certainly in February, you get all kinds of weird stuff. Again, forgotten byways nobody remembers. You know, I mentioned on the last episode, the head of the CDC said in February, you don't need to wear a mask right, if you're healthy. Right, right. You know, so but he's, he said why that was a lie later. So he's explained yeah, sure. how that was not good science. So you can't quote it oh, now. Okay, okay, that's cool. So uh, the internet never forgets though. You know? I know, I mean, it's, uh -huh. it's, uh, we, we can do a whole episode of mass at some point probably. I mean, <laughs> it, I don't know how to fight back against something that's a boogeyman. It, 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 right. I don't know how to do it. it the science I, is clear. I, anyway, <laughs> I, I think what's interesting is that you get you get options that could have been options that drop out once a corporatized marketable solution is available. Right. Because the thing about that, and we've said this before, but I I don't I'm not sure. Like I say, I think it's structural at the very least, is that our system is our system, our way of life. I don't know, is really good at giving you something that you can simply buy. You won't have to do anything or change anything, and you won't have to accept that something negative will be the case. You can buy a solution. And I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm saying like we do that with 
enormous. But that's, that's the definition of capitalism, of I think, in most people's minds. You, you know, I think that you can go you can go narrow in economic theory and argue it, but I think that is what when when, when Americans advocate capitalism, I like being a capitalist. Yeah. That's yeah. what they mean. Right. Is I yeah. can buy a solution to my problem. I don't have to jerry rig it myself. And this goes right. all the way up to my cancer. Yeah, this right. goes all the way up to uh, my health decisions or whatever, you know, any other thing. And there are there not to say that there aren't health issues that are just born with and come at you, too. But yeah. the idea that we can have the prepackaged solution or even the solution, that's where I think yeah. the myth is most wrong and where I'm, I'm struggling most to find a place to put my feet now. Because clearly, the modern world has presented us with things that do work. Uh, pragmatism has provided us mm -hmm. with a functioning reality that is better than it was 300 years ago with regard to our ability to not get killed randomly and just flagrantly by wild beasts and things. I call that good, right? I don't know. I mean, you kind of want to go back in the caves sometimes, I think. And so, not that there were caves, but, uh, you know, so I don't know if you, you agree with me on that, but yeah. the, the idea that modernism has given us something to yeah. learn, and yet we have to unhook from it also in some way, I just, that's what I feel like I know I have to figure out, but I cannot sure. find sure. a framework, uh, a principle to really set down on. I mean, yeah. as a Christian, I got stuff, right? But I'm talking about, you know, philosophically here. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, is there something in what we're talking about that really treads on your existential search? Are we talking about a thing that has changed, say, uh, or you think will change psychology uh, in in the next 10 or 20 years because of the effect it's having on us? Or am I just uh, way off on a limb right now? Okay. I mean, I think, I think, I think the, the topic of kind of technology and technological solutions Pre to human problems some of which, yeah, some of which are perennial, some of which would be new in the case of new, you know, viruses. That's kind of a, that's kind of bigger, I think, than I'm willing to go today. I'm happy to talk about it another time. I think what happens with the AIDS crisis is that you take something that is categorically a problem, which is actually the way that people live. And you first get the term lifestyle, promulgated right. in the early 1980s right. as if it's just kind of another option it's interesting that that being homosexual was not presented as a moral question as it is in almost all societies in almost all times it's presented as as a consumer choice and so for people that have made that choice uh as well as maybe some other choices we are going to offer this other consumer choice which is expensive but for which we will put in a lot of government funding to better it and also to help you pay for it. And so we will socialize the cost of living this way by socializing the cost of the medicine that will alleviate the sufferings that come with this way of life. But this comes from a view of medicine. This is, I think this is where I was going before. It comes from a view of medicine that is uh, Marie Curie and polio uh, minded, which is that we can study something for a while in the right way and we'll have a fix to it. And yeah. then what they did was they built an industry around that in an economic model that requires everlasting growth. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger in that industry. Yeah. And I'm not convinced that you can just solve 
you know, viral problems like this. And this is what scares me about the vaccine stuff. I'm, I'm really interested in your thoughts about any of, of that. I know Pfizer and Moderna are the ones that are leading the charge uh, as of my Twitter feed today. I know the mm-hmm. Pfizer one is not officially abortifacient used, though they may be using abortifacient uh, trials in-house that we would not know about, but officially no mm-hmm. actual baby parts in it. I don't know about the Moderna one, which I, was, I I'm curious about that if you know about that. But that whole thing... This whole thing feels like a big, too big to fail, but we can't tell anybody moment in our history. I don't know if that makes well, sense. Yeah, it does, well, it does I, make sense. I, it does make sense. Because I, I think what is, what is coming together with COVID is also the enormous political crisis that we're all undergoing, regardless of what we think about it. And because those crises are simultaneous, you have something going on that you didn't have in the 80s. It's not just that in the 80s, they were talking about what was understood to be a relatively small population because, you know, like TV shows hadn't convinced people that like 20% of people are gay or something. Right, right, right. You know, as you have today. But you also didn't have the the same levels of distrust, certainly not in the 80s. It was still mourning in America. Mourning in America, that's right. And Going so what you, have, what you have coming together today are two crises of just what are the facts, let alone what should be done about them. And so the, the problem there is that we have been presented with, if we look at this analogously, we're all, you know, gay men in San Francisco at this point, because we could all like die at any moment potentially or kill somebody. Accidentally, right, right, right. Accidentally, so our asymptomatically. Are super bound, okay. right, right. So we're, we all, we're all supposed to be scared. Now, the so in that sense, it's very much the same because you had a similar incredible diversity and intensity of opinion about what was happening and what was going on and why among gay men in San Francisco in the early 1980s, Hmm. okay, with a much higher observable death rate. Okay. Into the bargain, however, the thing that's not analogous is that we don't even agree that it's happening or we don't even agree what's going on anymore. Therefore, they like... The problem here is that whatever is developed, which will predictably be a consumer solution, which will be given to as many people as possible, and a lot of people will become wealthy off of it, just like AZT and the other anti-HIV stuff that they develop. In addition to that, however, you have a crisis that every form of establishment is undergoing in modern America, including the churches, and they've responded just about as well as anybody else, which is not so hot, many of them. And that is, why are you telling me this? Is this actually even true? You didn't have that problem in the 80s. And so I think one of the biggest differences is that the future is more uncertain. I'm not at all uncertain about what kind of a solution they're going to come up with. It's, in the case of Fauci, literally the same people. But that consumerized solution, which can be sold, is not a solution that's going to be acceptable because you're not trying to sell it to a relatively politically and economically coherent group of people who will sort of go along with it and be able to move forward with their lives from here. Because nobody, I mean, what you have political chaos similar to 
inside the Democratic Party in San Francisco in the early 80s, but now it's nationwide spread over 300 plus million people, okay? So thinking that there's gonna be like a solution or eventually we'll all agree or one, we'll get a vaccine and then it'll all be fine. It's naive. Politically, I think that's completely unrealistic. Yeah, it's naive, which is why it bothers me more than anything. Again, now I'm speaking as a pastor, but uh, you know, someone who works in any kind of business that requires consumers is going to split your com- your company in half over and over again, yeah. all over the place. It's yeah. going to split everything in half. You're going to have, you know, whether it's two thirds or to one third, three quarters to one quarter, doesn't matter. We're going to have right. this vast rift in society over who's going to vaccine and who's not going to vaccine, and it's going to divide people that otherwise didn't need to be. And that's where no. you know, if this right. is all a big ploy to just get a couple companies out of bankruptcy with some half baked vaccines, I'm really pissed about that. I mean, that shows you my my conspiracy levels. I'll go to, but um, at least in my worst <laughs> my worst moments. I, I, but what you're, what you said about, you know, asking why they're trustworthy, why is the story trustworthy? That gets back to what I was trying to push on the question. I can't answer. You said it's too big a question for today. Maybe where, where can I start putting my, my feet outside of, and let's say I'm, I'm yeah. a Christian, so I'm going to put my feet yeah, there. Yeah. Okay. Um, and yeah. then I'm pretty sure if I buy a book on like wiring or like how to lay a foundation, most that's yeah. going to be true. Right. Like I can probably sure. use that and it's not all wrong, yeah. but like, where's the place on the barometer of information and genre that I got to stop trusting? Right. Is it, is it histories? Is it encyclopedias? It's definitely oh, social okay. studies books. Right. Like, like where, <laughs> where do you go? I mean, I, I picked up um, I, on, on my Christian discord. I put a couple questions there. I tagged you on one of them. Cause these are my like personal conspiracy yeah. you know, cues. And I'm really curious about dark horse comics because my kids are reading Avatar The Last Airbender. It's a really good story. Father, you should read it. Okay, fine, I'll read it. And, and I look at it, and it's all about resisting sort of the um, the big business communist takeover of small towns and driving out of small industry and the huh. propping up of uh, egalitarianism as an idea. I mean, when you see okay. egalitarianism yeah. as, a, as a bolded word in the comic book, you're like, this ain't a comic book. This, yeah. this 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 is a textbook. Interesting. So I want to know what's Dark Horse's comics agenda. They've got to have one to publish stuff like this, and it can't be what yeah. Marvel's is. I'm curious. Yeah. But again, that comes back to that. My real question for you is, what genres can we can we kind of assume are safe or were safe up until a certain time in history? Is there a point in history that we should stop trusting the publishing houses to be honestly playing uh, with us in regards to say journals, science, um, any of that kind of stuff? Uh, and this, you know, from the hip, I know, I mean, I'm not asking you to be yeah. definitive here. No, I think, I mean, I think, I think that you, you all, there were always, there were always problems. I think that what you find is more or less honesty in different places at different times. And that sounds relativistic, but what I mean is you don't have to like go through life ripping out page 17 in this edition and page 121 in this other edition right, right. so that your kid doesn't get the wrong idea. The thing that you always have to do is figure out why I'm being told this, because even if the information is correct, the question is, why am I being given this information? Yeah, it's kind of like asking yeah. why, why were they reporting on something which was relatively geographically isolated, virulent and destructive, but relatively isolated in 1982. Why, why were they why were they talking about that and why a decade later were they talking about the very same disease solely in terms of research and alleviation of suffering and not in terms of personal behavior or why are, do they tell me they'll tell me about case rates they'll tell me about testing rates they'll tell me about lockdown procedures they won't tell me about the obesity rate in America or sunlight exposure for children you right. know they just 
compared with don't talk about it. So the issue is not like, okay, I have to be frightened of this or worried about this narrative or whatever. It's more like, how do I, my question for my own development is how do I become somebody who knows what I need to focus on and knows what I need to ignore? Because I would say that, I, I think, I think that part of the issue here is that similar to saying like, Hey, you know what's really common to the influenza epidemic and the AIDS epidemic and COVID is international travel by a bunch of people who don't really need to be there or were there for tragic war-related reasons. Nobody ever talks about that. Hey, do you know what's common to like avoiding disease would be exercising, especially outdoors, especially every day. Yeah, you know, and so yeah, those are yeah. things that I have control over so I'm not left as like the helpless subject of media narratives or conspiracies and wondering like, what are they going to try to do to me next? Yeah, because no, I think I that, sense, that. That, sense of, that sense of passivity is exactly what coverage of epidemics always induces in people and makes them go crazy. Yeah, I mean, the being at ease is not really a good thing, right? Uh, ultimately, right. there's right. a time yeah. for rest, but to be ultimately and always at rest not so good. Uh, your, your atrophy just set in pretty quick, really. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. still on the existential question though. Sure. Uh, Stranger Things. I watched the first season. You may not have watched any of it, but you know enough to know it's basically an homage to the eighties. Yeah. And, and yet it turns into a, a crazy horror movie where everything's backwards and wrong. And there's a place called the upside down and it's all, it's all, I don't know what eighties could have been. If they'd done horror. Well, they never did. You have like Freddy Krueger. Right. But, um, <laughs> Watching that the first season with my wife a year ago, the experience of of that kid's world uh, rung with me. Um, it was yeah. my experience growing up, and I feel like right now, that's like the age that I I culturally I could trust what I knew then. Mm. The amount the TV had been in my life, the amount the influence of the branding and the pushing and the do this and be that and like this and don't like that. Right. It hadn't set in much yet. Right. And that's what I, I just I'm frustrated by that because it seems like so much of then my American identity is, in fact, uh, a capital I was sold, a trinket. Um, yeah, now I, right. I live here. I'm a citizen. That's awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I bought land. I have a job. There's all sorts of privilege here too. But we're going to talk about heritage and identity. I don't know who I am, man. And and this yeah. thing really threw it off, right? I know I'm a Christian again, so that's not where my conversation is. I'm talking about from a, not a nationalist, uh, not necessarily even an ethnic, but like if I want to cheer for my neighborhood, I, mean, I got a T-shirt that says Illinois on it, but I'm embarrassed to wear it. You know what? What am I supposed to do? <laughs> Olympics? I don't care now. I really don't. And yeah. I probably won't ever yeah. again. Now that's just me, and I'm I'm a what what do you call it a um, an outlier a lot of times, but I don't think it doesn't reflect part of the curve at this too, right? Yeah. And so I'm asking yeah. again, save me from this, save me from having to be the kid in the in the Stranger Things thing, watching the wall move, and and at least at least tell me that it's only really been since 2008 in the smartphone, yeah. and yeah. up to 2008, most of it was what it looked like. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think that the existence of, especially it, it's promoted by media, but it's certainly, I mean, people indulge in it too. So I don't think it's just like being pushed on us. The amount of nostalgia, nostalgia I see as fundamentally tragic. Yeah, right. Right. So uh, if you read enough Jewish literature uh, of from different European countries, there will be immense nostalgia for pre-World War One Europe. 
and even specifically for pre-World War I Vienna or pre-World War I Berlin, this sense that we had a world and the world is gone now. It's basically tragic. Yeah. It's basically incredibly sad and it's about death, right? And the premonition of death, which I, you know, it's like, I now know that world was going to be obliterated. So I think that being sold nostalgia is always unfortunate, even though it's so much fun at the time, because it gives you a false sense of what was going on. Right. Because if you look back, I mean, like the federal government was, you know, uh, assaulting Americans over collection of taxes from the first. OK, mm-hmm. Shays Rebellion, Whiskey Rebellion. It's always been a mess. The reason to be patriotic, whether you're talking in terms of your family or your neighborhood or your country or whatever, patriotism should be sourced out of the fact that you are there, <laughs> yeah. not out yeah, of whether or not it was always wonderful or beautiful or amazing. That's not, but then, that's not, but then they've yeah. made this country one where you're not there and where you grew up and you leave and you're somewhere else, yeah. right? And right, so again, right, 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 you find yeah. yourself in a place where those factors which would have identified you as something more than just a blob of cells floating around a, a universe without any direction or ideas, uh, right. you know, you would have said, I am this, I am that, I do this, I do that. Those right. have been systematically ripped away from us in, and put in place. Um, it's so Matrix-like. It's like you're a battery. You just got to do your work and then go home, watch TV and, you know, suck that up and that you'll <laughs> yeah, feel identified right. my I, I, my wife and i haven't watched tv together for again about a year now maybe and it wasn't really an intentional decision just kind of happened but i said to her recently it's funny how much i thought i knew you when we watched tv together uh, we thought we knew each other because of the things we liked that we shared in common that we yeah, liked. Yeah, yeah. but as we talk i find out how little i know you and how it's more interesting <laughs> to talk to you than to yeah. watch something other people do that we both kind of like and aren't really right. even that sure about because half the time more than half the time is not even that great so you know there's something there um uh i don't know if that's a good place to close or or if you can go off that to bring us to an end we're kind of out of time uh where do you want to go next time and you know do you want to take one more pot shot at fauci (laughs) (laughs) i think well i think there's a i think there's more to be said about fauci i think a place to go next time is to talk about um, a couple other epidemics and how they were handled in American history because one of the differences between things earlier than the AIDS crisis and today is that they had TV, they had jet travel in the 1980s. If you go back earlier than that, responses become vastly different. So there's an interaction here between technology mm-hmm. and how epidemics are handled that it is something I didn't really talk that much about today except to say that they developed you know antiretroviral drugs mm-hmm. so that's something that we're we need to talk about more and fauci in that regard is a very modern figure not just because he's still on TV but also because he is part of a response to what we now call public health that is really only possible under certain technological conditions right 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 so yeah so it really is about what we what i called capitalism earlier the belief that technology has enabled us to always produce a solution to our problems if we throw enough money at it basically right Uh, Right. and and uh that this is a philosophical construct that doesn't hold water in real world and and we're kind of feeling that feeling the tremors of that 
Um, again, what all that means, it means what it meant today for you, right? Where you are, so you're going to walk out, you're going to be a better person where you are. Realize that there is logic and there are humans. They're called your neighbors. They might kill you, but then you should learn to speak barbarian and trade with them. Then they won't kill you and you can be friends and build a civilization. This is A Brief History of Power, two white guys. Dr. Adam Kutz is at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You can find him at ctsfw.edu and other stuff about that. I'm Rev Fisk at revfisk.com. You can also find us both. There is a, a mad Christian what is it channel on excuse me there's a channel on the mad christian discord server which if you search for mad christian you can find it and ask to join it um and it is a discussion of a brief brief history of power so if you're liking the show and want to talk to some of their like-minded crazy people um feel free to join in there dr Kunz will comment from time to time as will i uh, we do get anything that you send through com slash contact um and uh, in fact golly i feel like there was one question we should have brought up today that came through the mail but we'll have to do that next time uh, and you're also going to join me this saturday on the mad christian saturday morning chill to talk about voting processes and how we go from right now until november not november until uh um, January. December, isn't it now? Goodness yeah. gracious. Until January. The next steps for the American government that maybe you don't usually pay attention to because you never had to before. And it, it kind of <laughs> right, matters, exactly. matters right now. So that'll yeah. be this Saturday. Um, if you don't want to watch that show, we do reproduce that in the bonus content. And so that would be the Saturday morning chill that will come out. Not yeah, tomorrow, I think, but you know, a week from now, uh, that content will be there uh, near the bottom half of the last hour. When did you say you're going to come on? What time did you say? Uh, 930 Central. 930. So. Bottom half of the first hour. So 930 Central. All right, uh, so uh, that'll be a good place to end the show, I suppose. <laughs>